topic that is very popular to discuss everywhere you go from an unpopular direction. On the outset, I told you that the theme verse of our study of God and government as an October surprise for you <laughs> this year in 2022, our theme verse is 1 Peter 1.13. So let's turn there for just a moment and see what I mean. I'm not sure what's worse, being shocked by bad news or uh, disappointment that kind of grows, and then you're stuck with it. But both are bad, and I want to help you avoid both. Certainly disappointment. After describing our so great salvation in 1 Peter 1, in verse 10 he says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Those things into which angels long to look. So we're talking about the relationship of the church age believer to the Old Testament prophecies. Here, and you are the recipient of the fulfillment of the things in Christ in his first advent that the prophets looked for. And so if you think about the, the um, 1,500 plus years of history and prophecy and ministry and this looking forward to and the, the patriarchal priesthood sacrifices portraying the death of the one who would pay for our sins and then the instantiated mosaic covenant sacrifices under the Mosaic law that God established in the Levitical offerings and all these things pointing to Jesus and all this blood and all these uh, rituals pointing to the Son who would be born as a miracle, the only begotten one who would die for our sins. When you see that we have Christ and He has come, then we say that we are the beneficiaries of seeing those things they pointed to as actually taking place. And the Christ has come. And this is so far removed from our culture today, obviously. The idea of uh, looking forward to Christ and seeing the history develop towards the coming of the Messiah and then Him being born in a backwater in an unexpected place to an unexpected family who are happen to be genetically, one, two, three, and me, descendants of David, uh, positionally or experientially in their time, uh, peasants, uh, that, that these things have taken place and we've demonstrated, the prophets have shown you that this was the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, who would come and take away the sins of the world, uh, you're supposed to sort of revel in the fact that we see what they looked for. Isaiah is in a lesser status than you. He's anxiously looking for, what is this? The child will be born to us. And we're still looking for the son to be given to us because that's the second coming of Christ to set up his kingdom, a major theme of our study of God and government. But since you have the fulfillment of so much of what the prophets looked for, and you live in the, in the light of this coming of Christ, this most important event in human history, Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. That is an interesting paraphrase of what Peter actually says. He says, gird up the loins of your mind for action. He does say it. 
Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a great summary of, of how you stand in life based on the fact that Christ has come and the prophecies have been fulfilled that have been from the first advent. Now, what type of sentence or clause is fix your hope completely, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Can anybody tell me what kind of sentence that is? I'll, give you, I'll start off. It's not an interrogative sentence. It's not... Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the coming, of, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not an interrogative. So what, what do you think, Aileen? It's an, imperative. an imperative. I think it would be imperative that we would know what that means. We must learn what an imperative sentence is if we will, if we will appropriately respond to the text. Now, some have said this is to a Jewish Christian readership, so it only applies to Messianic Jews, to Jews who are Christians, the remnant of Israel in the church. And I would say that is Peter's audience, and that which applies to them in terms of the position they have in Christ is ours. That's the definition of the church, the one new man in Christ. So I won't make that division, despite the fact that Peter writes to diaspora Jewish Christian readership, like Matthew does. What I'm saying is, when Peter says, fix your eyes, fix your hope completely, this seems to be something we are responsible to do. And we're not in the circumstance historically that Peter was, that his people in the diaspora were. We're not dealing historically with the same types of pressures. The Roman Empire was a settled thing. It was the, the fourth beast that was different from the others. It was iron and, and horrific and grinding the nations to powder. It was, it was ironclad. There's nothing you're going to do to take down the Roman Empire. The Romans were the fact of history, and the nature of the Roman Empire is the governmental, after the flesh, the governmental context of the New Testament. So if you think about that, there's a couple of things that you have to deal with. There was no hoping in political solutions in their day. This is a historical thing that's happened since the great experiment of this uh, failed exercise uh, called republic freedom, uh, re- republic-based freedom. The idea of uh, representative government and all the things that we've enjoyed that have given us so much the challenges we have of not looking at government as solutions, they come directly from the fact that we're functionaries in our government. We have a vote. But if you think about what Peter's dealing with, he's never facing the question of whether uh, they can influence by their actions the decisions of the Caesars. So that challenge and that even distraction is not even on their horizon. They don't have it. But we do, and there's a great application here for us. God does establish kings and remove them. He does set up kingdoms and take them down. God is working in history on the favor of those who are the oppressed and the humbled by the oppression of the wicked, the oppressed righteous. And God is mindful of them and he's working on their account. And I don't mean the arrogant who would use government to oppress uh, owners of private property. I'm saying that when men and women become powerful 
in their sinfulness, they serve themselves often to the destruction of others. That's a major theme of both Old and New Testaments. And that's really our problem with government is our concern is that we who are the individual people working, doing our job, taking care of our families, are going to have our um, liberties that are God-given, and we're existing in Rome too, we're going to have them extinguished or, or removed or, or we're going to suffer because there will be the mighty who will oppress us, who, who have the machine guns and the, and the legitimacy of government. That's our fear. It's a legitimate fear. It's a historic fear. Throughout all nations, throughout all cultures, throughout all civilizations, there's been this problem of the powerful with sin equal terror for the, the less powerful. That's Lord Acton. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Because power corrupts. And it's because of the sinfulness of man. And so what I'm saying is, as we start this discussion of God and government just to get a perspective and have a message for our friends and family, for those around us in the time in which we live. It's so easy to get divided over the politics without looking at the metaphysics and the epistemology and the ethics that undergird our political stance. It's so easy to put a bumper sticker and say, red, blue, or um, I saw a funny bumper sticker yesterday. It said, mean tweets, 2024. (laughs) It was fantastic. Um, But that level of politics doesn't address the need. And here's the thing. Let's say that I have my political wish list for 2022 in the midterms and for 2024, given that I'm communicating in an American context to American Christians for an American, you know, Christian experience. And and if I was in another country, I'd do what was germane to that culture. But here we are. If I was going to apply the word of God to, to, to life regarding government, Uh, with you in this year, and I got my punch list of what I wanted to happen in 2022 in the midterms, and what I wanted to happen in 2024 in the general election, I got my list. I got my fantasy football list of all the people in the positions, because that's all we do is we elect people in positions with our franchise. And I rejoiced and celebrated at the wonder of having victory in all the things that I wanted. I hope you can see that I would be setting myself up for great disappointment because those humans are all sinful and flawed, and they're in a sinful and flawed system because it's, 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 it's congested by human sin. It's just it's not our hope. So if I'm hoping in 2022 or 2024, I've misplaced my hope. So I'm teaching Christian skepticism or cynicism about human endeavors, and the alternative to the letdown is an optimism in Christ because he is going to rule righteously. And that's really the the hope that I have, the revelation of Jesus Christ back to earth that Peter's referring to. So let's talk about the beginning of human government. If you go to Genesis chapter 9. Things are drying up. Floodwaters are receding. The beginning of human government. Genesis 9. God bless Noah. Now where is Genesis? That's the easy one, right? Just flip to the front. Where's chapter 9? Chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons 
And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the opposite of the urban project of clumping together in cities, expand, express, go and fill the earth. It's your inheritance. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and every uh, blind bird. I'm blind. Every bird. I was going to try to do it. The giant print Bible isn't cutting it. Every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea, into your hand they're given. Okay, so who is given dominion over the animals? Don't tell me Adam. Adam has been dead for quite a while now. Who is given dominion of the animals? Noah and his sons and their sons or their children. Noah and his family and their descendants. The human race. The human race is given dominion over the animals. It's ours to manage in terms of dominion. Into your hand they're given. Every moving thing that's alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Now, if you're like me, you're thankful for some of that gift of all the moving things on the ground. Um, In certain contexts, with certain preparations, some, a very small subset of those animals on the ground, are, um, are part of my regular diet. Most, the overwhelming majority of those things, are not uh, part of my diet. Only, and here's, the, here's the, the part that reflects creation order, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In the biological animal life of these animals, their life is in their blood. And we draw a distinction between human beings and animals in that we are spiritual beings made in God's image, and animals are not. So the life of the animal represented by its blood, you do not consume that. Why? Because God is the author of the life. God is the one who made it. God is the one who sustains it. It's a mystery Biological and spirit life is a mystery. So he says, don't eat the blood. It's an honor of God, the author of life, in terms of not eating the blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood if you drink the blood. From every beast I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So it's, he's giving a strict prohibition, which we don't really think about too much when we read Genesis 9, that you are not supposed to eat the animal's blood. You can say, well, when I make my steak, when I have my steak made medium rare, there's a little bit of red on the plate, and there that's blood. No, the way we butcher animals in this culture is reflective of the way God told Israel to do it. We drain the blood out of the animal. Whether you're a deer hunter or a butcher, you, it's very similar. You drain the animal's blood, and then when we prepare it, there is uh, something like blood, but it's not. It's another... Um, Liquid that, that's that red stuff on your plate. I think it's called myoglobin. It's not blood. And it may be related to blood, but just understand, um, you don't have to eat beef jerky to obey this command. <laughs> which is what people, people get wrapped around the axle about things. Um, but we're generally, in contrast to people strangling animals, this is the one that provisions in the Mosaic Law, don't eat anything strangled, it's what they told um, in, in Acts 15, when they said, don't eat, you know, don't eat the blood, don't eat anything strangled. It's because strangling animals leaves all their blood in their tissues, in their, in their, uh, in their system, their circulatory system. And um, if you don't 
do that draining of the blood, then all that blood that's pooling in the body is going to be part of, this, the, part of the, the food. And we don't do that. We're honoring God by draining out the blood of the animal because the life is represented in his blood. And then you have what we call the establishment of human government. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful, multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. People that are not biblically oriented on how we arrived at government or God as the author of this delegation of human responsibility, they'll often say, I don't believe in the death penalty. They'll argue for legitimate, sound, righteous governance, but they'll do it in the same breath as saying, I don't believe in the death penalty, and they'll say it for philosophic reasons. I heard a commentator the other day on the right say, I don't believe in the death penalty, it's not it's not good enough. We have to make them suffer <laughs> when they've hurt people or something like that. But the, and, and whenever someone says this, this person is coming from a Roman Catholic background and a Fox News uh, uh, career. We got derailed recently. All right. So, so saying this just betrays that you don't understand the biblical basis for human government. The first thing God gave man in terms of delegation of authority over man is the responsibility of capital punishment for shedding man's blood. He says, whoever sheds man's blood, while we're talking about blood in the animal, whoever sheds man's blood, see, we change the topic. By man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So just as you're honoring God, the author of life, in not eating the blood of the animal because it's reflective of the life God gave. So if you kill a human, that's another order of violation. You have destroyed the image bearer that God made. So you're further dishonoring God. That's what it is to uh, kill a human being. And you could say, well, this is self-contradictory because to kill someone, you have to destroy the image of God there when that person destroyed God's image. And the answer to that is, that is an unsympathetic reading of the Bible. That's a, that's a way to read it that's looking for contradictions. I can do that with anything. I can do that with what you've written. What he's saying is that the violation, this is the sympathetic reading. This is the believing reading. The violation of God's honor, transgressing his image bearer and therefore dishonoring God, cancels your carrying God's image. And the abomination is removed because it's, you forfeited your VA certificate. There's a forfeiture that's happened. And it doesn't cancel the, ex, the, the government. They're carrying God's image. That's what God assigned them to do. Now, from a secular worldview, from, a, from a, just how the culture is, this is how we grew, grew up, this is who we are. From that perspective... This sounds very absurd at first. At first. Capital punishment is the beginning of governance. Let me challenge you with something. When is the last time you encountered human government? I am on the October plan for tax filing, at least for the last 15 years. 
Oh, he's put in a, an extension. <laughs> um, I had to deal with the IRS recently. We all do. I was told by the former vice president it's patriotic duty to pay your taxes. That's one way I interface with human government. You could say, well, the post office. It is a federal agency, and violating the mail is a federal, uh, a federal crime if you mess with people's mail. Everybody know that? It's, it's a federal offense. <coughs> Feds have to get involved. Federal law enforcement. Who does federal law enforcement? Don't get me started. All right. But actually, since then, I have encountered other government functionaries who are those government functionaries I've encountered? The blue light special flying down the highway over here. I saw him chasing someone else. I was thankful that it wasn't me. The most fearful thing in the world is that blue lights in your rearview mirror. You pull over and he goes after the next person. Like, okay. <laughs> of course, what you're supposed to do selflessly is say, I hope he gets me so that the other person can get by, right? That's how you're... <laughs> we all encounter the police. In our government, it's just an example of Genesis 9-6. Why do I say that? Because everyone, every police officer has a 9mm on his, on his hip. Every police officer has the instrument of life and death. or Well, it is life and death. He's also got a taser, which is a different thing. And it can kill you, but it likely won't. If you have complications or other things. But uh, for the most part, it's going to seize you up and knock you out. But, uh, but he's got this... He's got this Last resort on his hip, and he's just standing there at Target, talking to the talking to the facility guy the other day. Just cop, just standing there with all his gear on. What are you doing in Target? He's bearing the sword, and he has lethal force, and he's been trained to use it, and he's licensed to use it, he's equipped to use it, and we all agree with that generally, that there has to be the enforcement. Now, anarchists will say no, but most people. Actually, it turns out they want to call a policeman when there's um, trouble. And I believe in that, but it, it's not a, 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 a biblical thing to have police. Biblically, if you ask who are the police in Israel, they're the men in the household. There's no spear control in Israel. right? If you, every household has a quartered soldier because every able-bodied man was part of the army in Israel. Think about that. So when you had to call the police, it was... It was, get your cousins together, and we have to go and address this. And you can read about that through the, the casuistic and uh, apodictic law in Israel. But what I'm saying is that you encounter this concept of Genesis 9-6 every time you see a policeman. Because he's got the sword, and the government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. We're all dealing with the fact that government carries the problem of life and death. And this is, in my understanding, historically why our government was founded the way it was, that the king can just arbitrarily kill you unless he gets shackled with the Magna Carta and everything that came after with actual law. And then he can't just kill you like David did Uriah the Hittite. He's got to go through channels. He's got to go through procedures. He's got to recognize, as law is designed to establish, the image bearer of God and certain inalienable rights. The argument of that we shouldn't have been through the revolution, for example, or the war for American independence is based on a misunderstanding of English law in the time. They were saying that the king had undone his, uh, had undone his basis for governance. 
That's what no taxation without representation means. It's saying that the law has been violated here and the basis for governance has been canceled and so we're, not, we're no longer English subjects. Whether they're right or wrong, that was their argument. So what I'm saying is that um, whether you're coming from a secular perspective of just, well, we have the police, we just call the police we need to, or a biblical perspective, the beginning of human government is life and death. And the problem of human government is life and death, is that the government can kill you. Did you hear about the recent recruiting drive for the IRS while we're back to that? Was it 86,000 IRS troopers, 87,000? And they all need to be trained in the, uh, in the lethal use of force with uh, semi-automatic handguns? The tax man cometh. He's coming hard. He's coming hot. Right? <laughs> he's, coming, he's coming with, with whatever is necessary. I, and you know, um, is, this a, is this Robin Hood? Is this the sheriff of Nottingham sending out his deputies to come fleece everybody? Like, what's going on? And uh, we say, well, we haven't seen them do this, but certainly it's interesting that there's all this, um, all this equipping. Uh, in a previous administration, I don't know if you remember the numbers of, of uh, bullets, the ammunition purchased for the various oblique agencies like the IRS. There was a big shortage of ammunition. They were buying billions and billions of 9mm rounds, some of them hollow point designed to actually definitely certainly kill someone. Look, all bullets are, but hollow points are better at it because they make a bigger uh, hole through the person. As the, as the bullet impacts, it flattens out and then cuts a, a, a bigger hole through someone. Um, to the IRS, why are we spending these billions of dollars of taxpayer money to f- equip the IRS with, with, wep- with bullets? That was an Obama administration thing. And, um, people like me were struggling with that uh, for a couple of reasons, and one of them was it put a shortage on ammunition, which probably was the reason they did it. You couldn't get ammo because it had all been bought up. couldn't get uh, primers if you were a reloader because uh, the ammo demand by the federal government and so forth. What am I saying? I'm saying that the problem with government is death. They'll kill you. They can kill you. They're given the authority to kill you, and that is a very pessimistic thing. To, to know, And when you know that it's now the sword principle, that the sword is involved in government, it makes it important. It makes it very important. The abortion debate in America, let's go there. The abortion debate in America is an interesting thing that we're assuming our civil liberties are, are intact and we're arguing over whether a woman can kill the baby or whether the baby has rights. Whether the woman can kill her baby or whether the baby has rights, you have two people, you have to deal with both people and their civil liberties. And it's a challenge and it's difficult and all that it is <clears throat> from a secular perspective. But isn't it interesting that in Red China, that's not the debate. There's no debate. If the government decides, and they have in the last 20 years, they can force an abortion on you. They can decide to kill the baby for you, because they're doing their draconian population controls. We don't have civil liberties there. That's not the way it works. See, what we're saying is that the way we set up government here to restrict that sword, to, to control it, to force it to, to a high provenance of certainty, like our law says, without, um, what's the criminal law statute, the standard, it's a, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, 
person's guilty and then the sword comes. The reason we set this up is because of how important it is that government has the sword. And so this is the problem of it. It's also the origin of it. As for you, be fruitful, multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So verse 6 is the reduction of the population one at a time, murderer by murderer, actually two at a time, a murderer and then the, that he, the person he kills and then the government kills him. And then verse 7 is, but it shouldn't be this way. You don't go around killing each other. Just go populate, go multiply. It's interesting that those two themes are co-located there. And again, this is the beginning of human government. While we're surveying the biblical concept of government, and I've established the problem, the origin of it in, in capital punishment, the problem of it is sinners are going to be deciding who gets killed. Ration care is one of the great problems of socialized medicine because there's a board of, de- of deciders who decides who gets the life-saving treatment and who doesn't. Well, what's the alternative? Who can afford? So that's not fair. The rich get to be healed and the poor have to die. There's going to be a rationing. That's how all resources, all scarce resources are rationed. That's how economics works. So who is going to assume the position of God to decide who lives and dies? I'd say leave it to God. Right? But isn't that a, it's, a, it's a conundrum for our civilization. Well, while we're surveying, let's flip ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and hear God's critique of human government. 1 Samuel 8. Things that, these two passages are very familiar to us, I assume. Genesis 9, the origin of human government. 1 Samuel 8, God's critique on human government. But I wanted to close this morning on a story, on a narrative from the stories of Samuel in establishing the monarchy in Israel. The setting of this story is that Samuel is the last judge over Israel. The first judge over national Israel was, who knows who the first judge was? I'll give you a hint. Don't flip to the book of Judges. Who's the first judge? The first one as a proxy in the place of God or representing God to lead the country at war and to make decisions, judge them on the basis of what God had said. Who was the executive that God first gave that to for national Israel? Moses. Moses is the first one. Remember Jethro says you can't judge everybody. You need to divide this up into the delegated powers in Exodus 14. All right. Not Exodus 14. Later. Moses. So everyone that comes after Moses is not a lawgiver. Moses isn't a lawgiver. He's the law receiver who communicates it as a prophet to God's people. But everyone's coming after Moses as an executive for the legislation that's been established. God said this is how it is. And now we execute as he said, Joshua, and then those that followed after him. And then you have the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in his own eyes, very similar to our culture. And you have these, uh, these waxes and wanes of fear for fear of God, like we do in our culture. And you have this successive spiral into national destruction, like you do in our culture. A lot of things in common between our culture and the judges. And maybe that we're calling out to the Lord and He's bringing us back <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but I'd be careful about comparing Gentile United States of America to a national Jewish Israel under God's covenant because there's a different arrangement. But anyway, the context of 1 Samuel 8 is you have the succession of judges who are given the power by God to wage war, to fight Israel's wars. And who is, who's the famous warrior judge? 
Who's the most famous warrior judge as you think of it? You've got Joshua, if you can't count him as a judge, and I do. But in the book of Judges, who's the warrior that uh, everyone likes to read the stories to tell the kids? Yeah, Samson, like the worst person ever. Uh, <laughs> the worst judge. Because he's supposed to be this great military hero, but he's having a soap opera, and he's killing people in revenge, um, which actually kills a bunch of Philistines as he's supposed to. But uh, Ehud, the great uh, 007 um, secret agent judge who decapitates um, Moab kills their king and then leads the country uh, to rally to throw off the Midian or Moabite oppression. Um, you have all these judges, and um, they they have this dual power. They're military leaders, but they're also somehow executives uh, addressing the nation with carrying out the law. <clears throat> so Samuel is getting older, and the people notice that he is not. Um, provided them a successor. And the legitimate problem is Samuel's kids don't walk in his ways. Remember, in terms of characters in the Bible, the greatest Old Testament person, the greatest uh, person, arguably, is Samuel. Because uh, every step he makes is the right step. There's one place in 1 Samuel 16 when God says, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? Take up your horn of oil and go. We're going to go to anoint the next guy. God's kind of critiquing him for being too devoted to Saul. Or maybe it's just the way he says it. But the point is that you can't really find a shadow on the character of Samuel. He's a flat character. You don't know much about his personality. We know how people responded to him when he shows up to Jesse's family. They're scared. Are you coming in peace? Oh, yeah, I'm coming in peace. Okay. So there's something about being the judge and being Samuel. But the point is that... um, the, um, the way the Bible portrays him, he is uh, someone that consistently gets it right. And this is very helpful um, because his kids don't. And it turns out that's not in the book of 1 Samuel, a critique on Samuel. Now you could try to do Proverbs 22.6 and cram it into something you think it means and, and critique Samuel, but the Bible doesn't. Because the, it turns out in terms of human government, every Human being has to decide. You have to make your own decisions. Parents, we set them up to make good decisions, but they don't always do it. And Proverbs 22.6 isn't even talking about that. Let's read the story. It came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. See why I think Samuel's a judge? Because he calls his sons judges. This is like the Jethro model of a judge assigning somebody else a delegated judgeship. So he points his sons, judges. Now, what are his sons' names? Do y'all remember? Joel, Joel, and Abijah. The name of his firstborn was Joel. That's Yahweh is God, Yah-El. Yoel is, is the male version of Yah-El. God, Yah, is God, Yah-El. And the second son, Avi-Yah. Avi, Avi's father, E is probably the pronominal suffix for first person singular, I, my. My Av, my father, is Yah. My father is God. That's probably what his name means. Some have said it means God of my father, but that seems to be a stretch. Probably my father is God. It's a, it's a proclamation by the parents of their faith in the Creator. A lot of the names in the Old Testament are that. See, Samuel had high hopes for his son, both of his sons. He named them after God. He named them after uh, the attitude he had toward God. 
But it didn't turn out that way. They were judging in Beersheba, so he set them up as judges, and they're judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. How do you go from Samuel, who's such a solid character, to his sons that he sets up after naming them after God's works, and they become fools, and they turn aside, and they go after dishonest gain? The only way you can explain it Okay, is that these people are making their choices. Now Samuel has made his choices. His sons have made their choices. Now interestingly, Samuel was not raised by his father. His father's name is Elkanah. Elkanah. He's not raised by his father. He's raised by the worst father in the Bible, Eli the priest. Eli the priest has two sons. Do you remember their names? Is it Hophni and Phinehas? Hophni and Phinehas, Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's sons. Another story, another priest problem with the sons, right? It's a common theme, right? But what happens with, uh, with Eli's sons? They're extortioners. They're gangsters. They go in for the priestly offering. You know what they do? They stick their fork in the pot. Hey, are you cooking dinner? Good, we came by, we smelled it. Uh, we came for, our, for the offering, for the Lord. It's for the Lord. And they stick their fork in the pot, and whatever they pulled out, that's the Lord's portion, and they would go eat it. And it's interesting and important in the story that Eli is a very heavy man. He's been eating the proceeds of his son's extortion. And the way he dies is actually thematic. He dies, he falls back off a log and breaks his neck under his great weight. That's part of the, the way the story's being shown, that there's a problem here. Now, Eli is... Uh, the worst father in the Bible, according to how his sons turned out, if you will. And it says he didn't restrain them. He did not censure them. It doesn't say that about Samuel, but it says that about Eli. And yet God was gracious because Hannah committed her son to the Lord and put him under Eli for his service. And he turned out to be the man of integrity that we read in 1 Samuel. It's very interesting the way this works. You can't blame Samuel's success on Eli's household. It doesn't work. It's the Lord working in Samuel. You can't, I don't think we blame uh, Joel and uh, Abijah's uh, failures on Samuel as a father. It doesn't do that in the text. It does that for Eli. It doesn't do it with Samuel. Interesting. So, so just in terms of human government, uh, household is the first level after individual responsibility. But you have all these problems of household, and they're coming to, uh, to, to plague the the bigger institution, the nation. They perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. It's a big enough problem that Samuel's kids don't walk after his ways that they have to bring this as an excuse to do what they want to do. And I think it is an excuse. They said to him, Behold, you have grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. None of the judges in the story of the judges, the stories of the, none of the judges are dynastic. They don't come because God had one guy and then raised up his son. They come because God raises up the judge. God grabs that man and uses him. And um, when you have um, succession with the judges like Gideon, what does he name his son? Avimelech. My father is the king. No. But there's a problem with Gideon and his son. It's interesting. We don't have dynastic judges. And so perhaps you could say Samuel made a mistake here. I think that's not too far. But the text doesn't get after him about it. It goes after Eli. It doesn't go after Samuel. 
But the people are after him about it. They say, your sons don't walk in your ways, so give us a king. Now, I will argue that this is perhaps by oversight, perhaps by age. Maybe he didn't um, respond soon enough. He's, maybe he's too old at this point in his life to be able to restrain his sons. But the point is that God has not raised up these boys. And so these people are without a judge. They don't have a good judge. They're being oppressed by the judges that they've received. And so they asked for a king. Now, I believe it's an excuse. I think they want a king like the rest of the nations. We want a king. What's the difference between a judge and a king? That's the question. One of them is directly beholden to the theocratic king of our nation who is God. And the other is in the place of that king who is God, and we're calling him the king. Part of it is language, what we call the person. But what is the language? We're replacing the concept of king in the creator to king in a human. See the substitution? They had a king, but they don't believe in their king. They don't trust in their king. They don't respond to him as their king. And this is the problem of Samuel's life. It's the problem of Eli's life, Hophni and Phinehas. It's the problem of Joel and Abijah and David and everyone else and you and me, and everyone we've ever met. Is that whether we have a human being in government calling the shots that affect our lives or not. We are made in God's image to bear his image, to be in a personal relationship with him. And he is sovereign. And his decision is more important than mine. And his preference is better than mine. He's better at wanting things than I am. And the king, in a theocratic sense, in terms of who is the creator and what is the ultimate goal of life, the king will never not be God. It's the doctrine of sovereignty. And I'm not talking about the promised kingdom of Israel. That's, that's derivative of God's sovereignty. What I'm talking about is that these people as a nation, as we learn in the book of Judges, it spiraled to the point that they generally reject God as the sovereign. And that is what's wrong with human government in our day. Not that we are advocating for a theocracy, but that every individual is responsible to fear God and walk with Him. Every individual is responsible to deal with the Creator. And that enables us to self government under God to make decisions that are pleasing to him to walk with him as we should the problem of human government in every instance across all generations and every civilization is the inability of the individual the unwillingness to say God you're my creator and I'll serve you now I'm not talking now notice I'm blending you're like well this is religion and you're talking about uh, government those are two separate things from a secular worldview they shouldn't be But from a biblical worldview, we're saying not that America needs to become a theocracy, but that every country is going to have a broken governance until we have a king who rules in perfect righteousness with an administration of enlightened and resurrected administrators who also rule under him in perfect righteousness. And so your hope isn't in going to be in government. In other words, I'm saying you're toward the end of an experiment God's been running to demonstrate at least for us, because we can see it, all through human history, the failure of man when he says no to his creator. But let's hear God's critique of human government because it's so helpful for our time. 
The thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now, who knows why Samuel is displeased with their statement, Give us a king? We've never used that language. Abimelech, Gideon's son, that was a problem. There was a problem with Gideon and his kids and trying to do this dynastic thing. Trying to take more to yourself than is, is authorized. Who gives the law? The king. Who's the lawgiver in Israel? Yahweh. He wrote it with his own finger. Right? I'm sorry, I'd right to left, not left to right. Give us a king. Samuel doesn't like that. And it may be because Samuel's partisan to his sons, but I don't think it is. It's because he's partisan to God because his worldview is that God is our king. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me for being king over them. So Samuel doesn't like it. He talks to God about it. He knows that it's wrong. And we have God's answer for what to do about it. Go with it. They don't know it, but they're picking their own switch. The stories of the South where Grandma used to make me go pick a switch off the peach tree or something that doesn't grow fruit, so that she could give me a switching. And the worst thing was picking the switch, they'll say. Or dad made me go pick the belt, and I'd try to pick the belt that I thought would hurt the least as he was going to spank me. They're picking their instrument of their correction. Now, what had God done in the time of the judges all before? When they had gone into idolatry, he had sold them, it says, sold them into oppression or slavery by another country. He had empowered another country, a Gentile nation, to rule over them. A pagan nation, a Gentile, like they're asking, king like the other nations. The Moabites ruled over them, the Philistines ruled over them, and all these other kingdoms would rule over them and oppress them. Then God would raise up a judge from within their own ranks, and he would deliver them from the oppression of this foreign power. That's why Samson's supposed to be fighting the Philistines. Right? The people, because people went into idolatry, God brought discipline from national uh, oppression from other countries, and then they cried out to the Lord, and then He heard their cry, and so they're trusting Him again, they're asking, they're praying to Him, and so then He brings up a judge to deliver them. That's the cycle of the judges. Well, now you're going to get kings from within your own ranks that are going to do what I did before with foreign powers. They didn't learn it, that God is in charge, and you just respond to Him. And here's the great thing about sociology. Individuals might have seen it here and there. At one point, the nation all said, we fear the Lord in in Exodus uh, uh, 20, whatever you say, we'll do, right? But but as a group, generally, humans don't do this. As a group, generally, humans won't say, I'll fear the Lord until they have to, until national disaster and everyone is scrambling together for what what can be a unifying principle. Well, the Creator is the ultimate unifying principle, and He's a person. So they've rejected me from being king over them, like all the deeds which they've done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day. See, we, God is punching in uh, his book of green stamps, <laughs> in a way. He's reminding all that we've seen all along. It's no different from when, when I gave them the law and said no idols, then immediately Aaron, no less than Aaron, is making an idol for them to worship while you're up getting the rest of my instructions. While you're getting the, the tablets with my handwriting on them. All the deeds which they've done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So, uh, we haven't heard in this passage in eight verses anything about idols. But yes, we have. 
Give us a king like the other nations. Idols. It's that what they, that's how their worldview works. And this is the interesting thing about idols is you can control them. You make it. You made the, the, with the handiwork of your hands. It may represent something in nature like the sun or the moon or something. You make an idol and worship it. The absurdity of this is that you are the creator of the idol. So subject, subconsciously or, or not, you're thinking of worshiping something that is subordinate to you. It's a fundamental undoing of creation order. And we all see the, the inconsistency. They've forsaken me and, other, and served other gods, so they're doing to you also. So this is how it's been, and they don't want your delegated rule. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel, you've been my prophet with my word in your mouth for these people all your life. I want you to give them a, another prophecy. You give them a chance to know. This is what's going to happen. They get to watch the movie before they... Uh, before they do it, they get to see the outcome of their choice before they make the choice. They see the whole chess game play out. So I'm going to move the chess piece here. And then God gives them like a fast forward to the end. And this is how you get checkmated. And they say, yep, make the move. So let it be written. So let it be done. Because they're unable to self-govern under their creator. They can't take God's revelation as instructive on how to make their decisions. And that's what God's looking for in the human race. He gives us his instructions that we take on faith in order to make our decisions. And we won't do it. We find an excuse. We find some way to dodge that self-government under God. So here's the critique. Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him of a king, asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots. And among his horsemen, they'll run before his chariots. Now, what is that? Well, that is the time-honored uh, uh, institution of the cavalry. You will have your sons fight his wars. It won't be like, um, quite like the like Gideon or uh, Ehud blowing the trumpet and saying, "Rally, rally, we're going to go fight the Moabites," as God um, brings a voluntary um, participation from the numbered Israelites. It'll be that the king has this standing army, forces this conscription. And we could say, well, I like the idea of joining together to fight for my country, to fight for my family. I like that idea. And, um, and we should all work together on such a thing and to have a country. That's how God set up Israel. I don't like the idea of being uh, Saul's hit squad to go after David who didn't, didn't do anything wrong. I don't like being um, the FBI sent to raid people who um, are, uh, what do you think I'm going to say? Advocating for human life, I'm not going to send the FBI to do that, to, to raid, for, raid people who um, haven't done any violence or any vandalism, but they have uh, opposed uh, abortion clinics. Like, we're not going to use, I, don't, I like the FBI, but I don't like it being abused that way, is the idea. And so, right here, Saul is going to have, the king you select is going to have his own standing army. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands, of fifties, and, uh, and some to do his plowing and reap his harvest, make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. So it's, it's conscription. And one of the definitions of slavery is the loss of self-determination. This is one of the great arguments against the draft in our country, is that the loss of self-determination is one of the key features in, in being enslaved. 
It's also an argument that's out there in the, in the, in the, the litigation about um, whether a, a, an inmate, a convicted prisoner, a, a, incarcerated, should be doing hard labor because if they're working, is that against their will, is that not enslavement? And so the fear of, um, of uh, stepping on that tendency. Well, here's the thing. You're going to serve someone. Everybody will. You are enslaved to someone or something. Everyone is. I'm not enslaved. I've been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus. You were bought? That's redemption. That's right. You are owned. Love it. Can't get free of that. So he'll appoint commanders of his, of, of, of his armies. And he'll also get um, workers, just conscript workers, to do all his work. He'll build industry top-down, government-forced industry. That's what a king does. What's the difference between a king and a guy that wants to uh, farm and work hard, make a profit, sell it at the market? What's the difference between a king forcing a, a laborer on his land versus a man taking the inheritance God gave them in Joshua's distribution of the land to turn a profit on that land with, with, with agriculture? What's the difference? It's volition. It's the person's decision. You're going to lose self-determination if you have a king. Can these people bear up and thrive? And can I be a cavalryman and, and conscripted into Saul's army and serve God? I can. But this is what it's going to be. The king is going to take away your volition. And this is the problem of people. They don't want to have volition. When I was in Iraq, the first year of Iraq, the argument, propaganda, everything, was that we are here to free you and to give you liberty and to set you up with a democratic republic so that you can be your own people and self-determining. And that sounds good to English and American ears, and it sounds like hell to tribal people who are used to the, um, the uh, sheikh system in, in Iraq. It sounds great to us. It sounds awful to them. And I was surprised the English-speaking educated people at the hospital were saying, we don't want freedom, we want security. And I, and I thought, oh, what a horrible thing. And then we saw all the horrors that were being perpetrated because there was no law and order because Saddam had released all the prisoners and the sheikhs, the dons, the, the local tribal majesties, they worked to get things back under control because that's their culture, for good or bad. And it's, it's sinful, but it's all sinful. It's an absurd thing we try to do to force people to have a form of government that they have no perspective or no, no basis to have, no capacity. But, Paul, but Saul is going to, the king, whoever the king, we can't, Saul first, he is going to take away self-determination. Another word for self-determination is liberty, and it's the basis for the experiment that is our country. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. Now we've got fiefdoms, we've got uh, dukes and lords and um, and land gifts. Who, who gave the land to the people of Israel? Who gave the land to the children of Israel? God gave the land. Who's the king that decides who gets what part? God is the one. Well, that, that's going to change. The new arrangement is going to be that this lower king that didn't make the land and it isn't his is going to start parceling it out the way he sees fit. 
He'll take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and his servants. A tenth. Aren't they already giving a tenth here and there and yon? Isn't there two tenths a year and then a tenth every three years? Didn't they already have that? Well, you're going to have some more. And so he's going to tax you. And Lord, give us a flat tax. The wickedness of the kings that I'm telling you is going to be like the Gentiles. At least they had a flat tax. <laughs> He'll also take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, and your donkeys, use them for his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks. You yourselves will become his servants. So you lose self-determination. You become his servants. And that's what kings have. They have subjects. I really love our former government. We don't have subjects. I'm not a subject of the king. I'm a citizen with a, with a franchise. We are the government. And so we deserve what we get, I guess. Then you'll cry out in that day because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Do you see verse 18 in its context? No, because we just lost the feed to the stupid... Fallen, fallen is my equipment. There we go. Well, anyway. When they were under oppression from the Philistines, they call out to the Lord, and he raised up a judge and answered them. When they're under the oppression of this new king of your own people, I'm not going to hear you. It's just going to go. And so if there was a cycle of degradation and judges, look out, it's going to be much worse because he's not going to deliver them the way he did before. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us. So this is the problem of human government. This is why I picked the topic God and government in this time. Because when God gives his revelation, you and I have one proper response. And it is to take it on faith and then do what he asks. I trust him and so I obey him. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I don't mean we trust the government and obey the government. That's a different arrangement. And that seems to be uh, part of the problem of our time. I have one last thing I want to show you when we talk about God and government. Anybody know what this is? A fresco. That's correct. It's a fresco. (laughs) Do you know what fresco that is? Completed in, uh, the, in the Civil War, I think, in either 1863 or 65. It's not up there. Well, then how could you know? You're like, now everybody's like, well, of course it's a fresco. <laughs> Where is this fresco fi- finished in around 1865? But it's in the Capitol building, the United States Capitol. It's the top. It's the eye of the Capitol. So when you see the picture of the Capitol building with that Capitol on top, you look in the, in the rotunda, you go look straight up in the bottom of that, and that's what you see. This painting that looks like a Renaissance-style fresco. By an Italian Renaissance-style painter, um, artist. I forget his name. Brumidi, that's the guy's name. Let me read you about this. Has anyone ever seen this in person? All right. I'm sure you all have your opinions if you have. Brumidi has depicted here George Washington. See George? Look to the middle. 
George Washington, now, now to be fair, he's not in the very center of the thing, but here he is enshrined in purple robes. This is called the apotheosis of Washington. Apotheosis means the uh, rising of a person to godhood or to symbolic majesty as a, as a symbol or an icon. And people really did like Washington in the 1800s. <clears throat> now, this is what's interesting about the way people think. There are six, collect, six, six groups. So he's surrounded by 13 maidens, 13 colonies. Okay? He's holding a sword, which you can't see, but you can look it up sometime. He's holding a sword. He's pointing to some writing. I don't know what it is. It might be the Bible, but I doubt it. I'd love to be educated further. But, but maybe it's the Constitution. But regardless of what document he's looking at, he's telling us a lot more, or they're telling us a lot more by what is depicted here. These are all symbolic depictions. Who sees the, the sea here? What's the sea? That's Neptune's trident. Well, Neptune, what's he doing on here? He's a Greek god or a Roman god. Uh, surely we're not having a lot more. Look at how you've got these giant figures around these small figures. Giant figure around the smaller ones. Giant Vulcan forging a cannon around these smaller humans. And that's the theme. Uh, is that Pallas Athena? So you have six themes. War with armed freedom and the eagle defending tyranny and kingly, defeating tyranny and kingly power. Is this, is this war? Is this uh, Ares? Or, um, or um, who is it? Mars? Uh, science, Minerva's teaching Benjamin Franklin, Robert Fulton and Samuel Morse. So Minerva's teaching the, the men of science so that they'll know. Marine, the Neptune is holding his trident. Venus is holding the transatlantic cable, which is being laid at the time the fresco was painted. I don't know where that part is, where she's holding, maybe, maybe here. Notice the rainbow. One of the descriptions of the throne room of heaven is that it's got rainbow uh, surrounding it. Commerce, Mercury is handing, uh, where's, Mer- where's Mercury? He's handing a bag of, there it is, he's handing the bag of um, money to Robert Morris, financier of the American Revolution. Mechanics, Vulcan is at the anvil of the forge, producing a cannon and a steam engine. Agriculture, Ceres, seated on McCormick Reaper, accompanied by America in a red liberty cap and flora picking flowers. All right, so you're here at church on Sunday morning, you're like, we're not going to talk about false gods. I don't think that the writer, the, the author of this image, was trying to say that Washington is a god. He was trying to say Washington is immortal, immortal to us. He's an ideal. But isn't it interesting that thematically all the blessings that gave us our country are gifts from the Roman gods? <laughs> isn't that an amazing thought? And I want to say, okay, well, it's just idealistic language. They're just saying big thoughts. You know, isn't it a shame that this adorns our Capitol building with the deification of any human being? I think it is. But even worse, I think, to give praise to anything but the actual Creator for all these blessings that are described here, what a curse. We're not grateful to the idea of industry or Vulcan or the demon <laughs> that people worshipped. Right? There is a real war on. And we're saying exactly the wrong thing in this fresco. Now, here's the thing. You can't make any pictures of God. There's no way to fresco depict our, our providence. 
And that's a problem. That's why we've got all these steeples. With all, everybody's pointing to heaven <laughs> with our art. But I just thought you should see that we early on are thinking similar thoughts that basically from a humanistic frame, we are making our gods and we're a product of the great ideals. But the truth is that there is a war of personal beings on and this is telling exactly the wrong story about that war. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the time we've been able to invest today in thinking about this survey, uh, opening up this concept of you and your design for government. And thank you that our only hope is the second coming of Jesus regarding human government. In Christ's name, amen.